I want you to imagine with me just for a minute if while uh, Julie and Pam were singing that song, the room had been completely dark, pitch black, so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. That kind of darkness makes us feel uncomfortable, especially if it lasts for a while. We don't like being in the dark for any length of time. And then imagine that the first candle on the Advent wreath is being lit. Just a small flame, not very bright, but it's enough light to pierce the darkness. It's not enough light so that we could see to read. It's not enough light so that we could recognize the faces of people more than a a foot or two away from us, but it's enough light to give us hope. It's enough light to give us the hope that more is coming. And that's what Advent is about. Advent is a light shining in the darkness. And the, the word Advent means coming or arrival. It's a celebration of the coming of the light. It's the celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to give us hope, to give us new life. And for centuries, Christians all over the world have taken the four Sundays leading up to Christmas as an opportunity to prepare our hearts spiritually and to celebrate the light that's coming into the world. And it's a tradition that we've had here at Renaissance for a number of years, and I'm excited that we're, that we're doing it again together. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about the different traditions that we might have. We just finished celebrating Thanksgiving, and each of us in our families or with friends has different traditions that we like to have. Many people will have turkey. Some will have turduckins. Some will have the whatever the tofu, uh, tofuti or whatever it's called, the equivalent there that you have of a, of a, of a turkey in, in tofu. We have stuffing, we have mashed potatoes, we have all sorts of different things. And then the next day begins what is probably the quintessentially American tradition in terms of preparing for Christmas, and that's shopping. It's buying stuff. And uh, the shopping season, the Christmas shopping season begins on Black Friday. It goes all the way through Christmas Eve, and that's all we pretty much do as Americans between Black Friday and Christmas Eve. And if you've ever never heard Black Friday, Friday defined, I saw this the other day and I thought it fit very well. Black Friday is the day when people trample each other to buy more stuff the day after they've already given thanks for what they already have. If you're not from the United States, welcome. We're glad that you're here. You now know everything there is to know about us. Advent, on the other hand, is a little bit more tame. We don't trample each other to get into church. Although, could you imagine what it would be like if people were just rushing to come to church, to worship God, to celebrate Advent? We were so excited. We were as excited about Jesus' arrival as we are about being able to get whatever flat screen TV or whatever it is that you're trying to buy on Black Friday. Advent is this four-week time of preparation. It's a time not so much to prepare ourselves physically as it is to prepare ourselves spiritually. It's getting 
our hearts ready. It's focusing our hearts on who Jesus is and why he came into the world. And to do that, we light a candle each of four Sundays leading up uh, to, to Christmas Eve. Three purple candles, one pink candle, and then on Christmas Eve, we light a white candle. And each of those candles has a specific meaning. Each of those candles is designed or intended to help us to focus on a different aspect of Jesus' coming. And like the light from a candle, Jesus' advent, Jesus' coming, Jesus' arrival into the world gives us hope that even in the midst of the darkness and the brokenness and the fallenness and the pain and the difficulties and the challenges of the world in which we live, even in the midst of that, there still is hope. It's not perfect yet, but because of what Christ has done, it's getting better. And we have the hope of a better life now and ultimately of a perfect life when we get to spend eternity with our Lord and Savior. And today, being the first Sunday of Advent, we light the first candle, and it's called the prophecy candle. And it reminds us of the promises that God gave really throughout all of the Scripture, throughout the entire Bible, the promises that God gave that the day would come that He was going to send the One, the Messiah, who was going to rescue and ransom as we as we heard in that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that he was going to rescue and ransom us from within this broken and this fallen and this what can be a very dark world. And this contrast between light and darkness, it's, as I was thinking about that over the last couple of weeks, this contrast between light and darkness is really seen throughout the Bible, and it's pretty amazing to trace it through really from the beginning all the way through to the end of the Bible and see how God works and uses light to dispel darkness really since the beginning. And it began in the opening verses of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. We're uncomfortable in the darkness. We don't like it. We can't see. We don't know what's out there, and God knows that. So the first thing that God created when he created the world, was not us, wasn't plants, wasn't animals, wasn't anything else. The first thing that God created was light. And after that, he made everything else, including us, including humanity. And at first, when God created the world and everything that was in it, everything was perfect. It was exactly the way that he wanted it to be. And when he created humanity, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they had a perfect relationship with one another. They weren't afraid of each other. They didn't have anything to hide from one another. They enjoyed being with one another and had a perfect relationship with their creator. They had a perfect relationship with God. They would interact with him. They would talk with him. They enjoyed being with him. There was no fear. There was nothing to hide but then they made the decision to try to act independently of God. They decided that they knew better than God 
what was best for them. Of course, they didn't. And when this happened, when they chose to eat the forbidden fruit, and if you're familiar with the opening chapters of Genesis, you know that story. If you're not, take a little bit of time, read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It'll only take you about 10 minutes or so to read that. And you can read the story of what happened there. But when Adam and Eve decided to act independently of God, they fell. The world was no longer perfect. And all of a sudden, fear entered into the world. Shame entered into the world. Guilt entered into the world. And this perfect paradise was broken. And instead of wanting to be with one another, instead of wanting to be with God, Adam and Eve wanted to hide from each other. So they covered themselves. And they wanted to hide from God, so they tried to run away from God. They tried to hide from Him, but they weren't able to do it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said, Where are you? And Adam answered, he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now watch this picture. You've got this picture of God walking in the garden of Eden. He wants to be with Adam and Eve. The creator of the universe wanted to be with the people whom he had created, but they didn't want to be with him. So they hid from him. They tried to get out of his sight. Of course, there's no way that you're going to be able to hide from the creator of the universe, but they, at least they tried to do it because they were afraid of him. And yet God pursued them. Even though they were the ones that had broken the relationship with God, even though they were the ones who had not trusted him, even though they were the ones who had disobeyed him, they were the ones hiding from him. God pursued them because he wanted to be with them. And that's been the story of humanity ever since that fateful day. We continually try to act independently of God, and we fail to do so. We continually try to hide from God, and we fail to do so. And God continually pursues us. He's looking for us. He wants to be with us because that's the kind of God whom he is. A few minutes, just a few minutes after Adam and Eve tried unsuccessfully to hide from God, God made a promise to them, what we would call the first prophecy. God made a promise to them that gives both them and us hope that even though the world is broken, even though the world is fallen, even though the relationships that we have between one another and between us and God aren't the way that God had designed them to be, there's hope, there's light in the darkness that things are going to get better. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he's speaking to the serpent. God is speaking to the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve, who had enticed them to act independently of God, to trust themselves and to trust the serpent rather than trusting God. And God is speaking to the serpent and he says, 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if you're reading this, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, what in the world is going on? And, and on the surface, it looks like what he's saying, that what God is saying is that there's going to be enmity, there's going to be strife, there's going to be discord between snakes and human beings. And most of the snakes that I know and most of the human beings that I know don't get along too well with one another. So on the surface, that seems to be what God is talking about. But there's a deeper level at which God is speaking. And he's saying that there's going to be this enmity between the one who is behind the serpent and between humanity. There's going to be this struggle, this fight between evil and good. And ultimately, good is going to triumph over evil. Now, it's just one candle in a very large and very dark room. When you're reading this for the first time, if you've not read the rest of the Bible, you really don't know exactly what God is speaking about here. You know that there's something there. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a little bit of light, but there's a whole lot more to come. And God takes that theme, that hope, that promise, that glimmer of light, and he expands on it throughout the rest of Scripture. And the story that God begins writing there culminates in the arrival of Jesus Christ at Christmas. And that's why we celebrate Advent. Throughout the Old Testament, really throughout the Bible, but I want to trace much of uh, in, in the Old Testament, this contrast between darkness and light, God manifests himself using the imagery of light all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I'm just going to pick a couple of stories with which some of you are already familiar, others of you it may be new, but just watch what's happening here. If you remember in the book of Exodus, whether you've read the book of Exodus or whether you've seen one of the movies uh, that talk about the, the, the book of Exodus, one of the first times that we see God manifesting himself using the imagery of light is when God appears to Moses in the burning bush in the middle of the wilderness. This guy named Moses, he's wandering around in the desert for about 40 years, and one day he comes along and he sees this bush that's burning. And you don't run into a burning bush, especially a, bur a bush that burns and isn't being consumed by the fire for any length of time. And so Moses comes, he sees this bush burning, he walks over to it to check it out and figure out what's going on there. And he encounters God because God was in that burning bush. And that's one of the first times that God reveals himself using the imagery of light. And God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of darkness, to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. So Moses goes back to Egypt from where he had come. He confronts Pharaoh and with a series of miracles, God uses Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they come back to that same wilderness where Moses had been, and they're traversing that wilderness going from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. And throughout the 40 years that they're wandering throughout the, throughout, throughout the wilderness, God manifested himself to them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So you've got the burning bush, then you've got this pillar of fire where God is using this light as a way of reminding people 
that he is the God of light. He's the one who gives hope. He's the one who shines light in the darkness. And then during that time, God told the Israelites to set up this large tent that was called the tabernacle as a place where they would worship him. And the, the tabernacle had several rooms in it. And in the innermost room, God manifested his presence in what the Bible describes as this kind of glowing, radiant light called the glory of God in the center of the tabernacle. And it was so bright, it was so radiant, it was so powerful that when Moses went into the tabernacle to talk face to face with God and he would come out, his face was glowing so brightly that he had to cover his face because it made the people of Israel afraid. So you've got the burning bush, you've got the pillar of fire, you've got the glory of God as this glowing light inside the tabernacle. And you see this pattern where God is beginning to manifest his presence with his people saying, I am with you. And the way that you're going to know this is because my glory, this light is here with you. So then they enter into the promised land. And after a time there, they end up building a permanent structure, a permanent place where they can worship God. It's called the temple. It has the same basic layout as the tabernacle. It's got this inner room, and the glory of God, this glowing light, fills the inner room of the temple. And again, same thing as with the tabernacle. When the Israelites see this glowing light in the temple, they know that their God is with them. The same God who was with Adam and Eve, the same God who pursued Adam and Eve when they tried to hide from him, the same God who revealed himself to Moses, the same God who led them for 40 years through the wilderness, this same God is with them in the temple. And they know that, that God is present with them. But there's a problem. Like Adam and Eve, and like every human being after Adam and Eve, the Israelites tried to act independently of God. They didn't trust that his way was the best way. They decided that in some sense, they knew better than God. They probably didn't say to themselves, you know what, we know better than God, so we're going to say, forget him. They just made that decision, perhaps subconsciously, perhaps unconsciously, and they tried to act independently of God. They rebelled against him. They turned away from him. And finally, God said, enough. You want to be on your own? You want to try to live life without me? Have at it, and then let me know how that goes. And there's a, there's a prophet named Ezekiel, one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand because there's all this incredibly bizarre imagery in the book uh, of Ezekiel. You've got these wheels with eyes all over it. You've got these four living creatures that look like a combination of, of lions and eagles and, and different animals in that way. It's a really bizarre book. But near the beginning of the book, Ezekiel has this vision. And in the vision, God brings him to the innermost room of the temple. And he sees the glory of God, this glowing light, this manifestation of God's presence with his people. He sees the glory of God in the innermost room of the temple. And as he's watching, the glory of God moves from the inner room of the temple and it moves out of that and it moves to the doorway of the temple. And then as he's watching, it moves from the doorway 
of the temple to the edge of the outer court. So there's this courtyard around the temple. So it moves from inside to the doorway, moves from the doorway to the edge of the outer court. And then as Ezekiel is watching this, the glory of God, this manifestation of God's presence with his people, leaves the temple area, moves to the gate of the city, and then from the gate of the city, it moves out of the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's devastated by this because he realizes that what has just happened is God is no longer with his people. His people have said, we can do this without you. And so God says, okay, have a try. See how that works out for you. And so this God who had been present with his people from day one says, I'm out of here. The light is gone. Darkness has reigned. And the few people who still had a heart for God felt very, very alone because God was no longer present with them. And that's where the song that Julie sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that's where that song comes in. That song is a cry by God's people for him to return to them and rescue them from the darkness. See, at this point, what happens then is that the Israelites are conquered by a couple of different foreign nations. One is the Assyrians and the other is the Babylonians. And they're taken away into captivity into Babylon. So they're living in this dark foreign land away from the place that they love. They're no longer even in the land of Israel, whether they wanted to go to the temple and worship God or not. They don't have that opportunity anymore. God has departed from them. They're in this foreign land. And here's where the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, comes in. It wasn't written by the Jewish people at that time. It was written centuries later by Christians who were looking back at this and appropriating that imagery as their own and asking God to rescue them from the darkness, from the difficulty, from the, from the pain of living in the broken world in which they lived. And each verse of this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, refers to the Messiah using a different name. Emmanuel, Rod of Jesse, Dayspring, Key of David, Lord of Might, Desire of Nations. Each of those six different verses, we only sang three this morning, but each of those six different verses refers to a prophecy, a promise that God had made in the Old Testament centuries before Jesus came to the earth. Each of those six different names refers to a different aspect of who Jesus is and what at the time he was going to do for his people and what now as we look back, we see that he has begun to do for us as well. So for example, the title and first verse, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, they come from a promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years 
before Jesus came into the world. And Matthew, the gospel writer, the biographer of Jesus, when he looked back at the birth of Jesus and thought about this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he wrote about it and he said, all this, this birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what Matthew is saying is that hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God made a promise that one was going to come who was going to be referred to as Emmanuel, whether it begins with an I or an E, it's the same word, who was going to be referred to as Emmanuel, not so much that that was going to be the name by which people would speak to him, but it was going to be what was said of him, meaning God with us. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're singing, O God, come and be with us, just as you promised to your people through Isaiah the prophet. That's what we're singing when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. So that's Matthew's reflection, or at least a piece of Matthew's reflection on Jesus' birth as he's seeing the sweep of history and realizing what God is doing, what he's promised to do, and what he's done when he sent his son. The other, another one of the gospel writers, John, who was Jesus' closest earthly friend when Jesus was here on the earth, John looked at it from a slightly different perspective. And John picked up on this imagery of the contrast between darkness and light. Earlier, we read a passage, Val read the passage from John chapter one. I just wanna hit a couple of highlights of that, looking at it again. In the beginning, John harkens right back to Genesis chapter one. He takes us right back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Through him, the word, all things were made. In him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. See what John is doing. He's going all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. God spoke the word. And he said, let there be light. And the light shone in the darkness. And the darkness was not able to overcome it because the light pierced the darkness. In a physical sense, yes, when there's light, the darkness is dispelled, but also in a spiritual sense. When Jesus came into the world, the light that he brought dispels the darkness. It pierces the darkness, and the darkness, evil, ignorance, falsehood, lies, are not able to overcome the good, the truth, knowledge. Light overcomes darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome light. And when John is looking back at Jesus' birth, he looks at it from this, in a sense, philosophical perspective where he sees this contrast between light and darkness. And he says, the one who came into the world is the light. He's the one who brings light into the world. And watch what happens when he continues on. He says, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. If we didn't see it before, we know now he's talking about Jesus because he says this word, who is the light, became flesh. God dwells with his people. God is once again present with his people. But watch what's happening here. When he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us. I want to retranslate that phrase, made his dwelling, because literally it means the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's a really unusual word. It means he pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, that same glory that was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If you were a Jew at that time, reading what John had written, you would be blown away because the glory of God that had been in the tabernacle, this light of God's presence that had been in the tabernacle and then in the temple and then had departed in the book of Ezekiel has now returned and is tabernacling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we look at him, we see the glory of God, the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God, the majesty of God, and we realize that God is present with us. Emmanuel. John doesn't use the word Emmanuel, but conceptually he's saying the same thing. The light, the glory is with us. God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate Advent. Because God is with us. And that gives us hope that he will rescue us, that he is rescuing us from this broken, fallen, dark, difficult, challenging world. And all of us, all of us are like Adam and Eve we try to live independently of God, but we're not able to do it as well as we think we can. We try to hide from God. Sometimes we hide from him because we don't like what he's telling us to do. Other times we hide from him because we feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We feel afraid of God. Whatever the reason, as we're celebrating Advent, as we're working our way toward Christmas, as we're working our way toward the celebration of Jesus coming into the world to be with us, we need to remind ourselves that God has always pursued his children. Even after the glory had departed from the temple, God still gave promises to his people that one day the glory would return. And actually later on in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees another vision in which the glory returns. And the glory did return in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you're hiding from God, why not come out of the darkness and into the light and receive the love and the grace and the forgiveness that he offers to us through Jesus Christ? We can't hide from him. We're not able to do it. So why don't we just stop trying and just come to him and receive the love and the grace and the forgiveness that he freely offers us because he has always been pursuing us and he always will pursue us. So we just need to surrender to him and come to the light and enjoy it. And sometimes we're not hiding. Sometimes we're just distracted. Life's busy. There's an awful lot going on, especially in the month of December. Awful lot going on in our lives. And so much of it is good. But if we're not careful, we can be distracted from our relationship with God. We can be distracted from the real reason why we're celebrating Christmas in just a few weeks. And when that happens, we need to stop and make an intentional effort to turn our focus back to God. I need to do that for myself every single day, every day. I need to do that. Let me encourage you, take some time 
every day between now and Christmas, even if it's just a few minutes to stop and to reflect on the fact that we have a God who wants to be with us, who loves us, who cares for us, who's working in our lives for our good and for his glory, who forgives us, who gives us hope and comfort and peace ultimately by his presence. We have a link on our website to a set of uh, Advent reflections, one for each day between now and all the way through Christmas Eve. And you can go to that link. It's got a list of the different reflections. Take you about five minutes or so. You can do that by yourself or with a family, with friends, however you want to do that. It just takes you a few minutes every day to turn your heart and get your focus on who God is and what he's done as he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world. It's available on our website. If you subscribe to our weekly email, you received a link to that there. If you don't have either of those, shoot me an email, clay at renchurch.com. I'm happy to send you the link to that. Great way to really prepare your heart for Christmas. And then there's other times. Sometimes we hide from God. Sometimes we're distracted. And other times we're just overwhelmed with the, with the pain, with the darkness of living in this broken world. There are people here this morning who have lost loved ones, maybe even in the past year, maybe even during this season. It's a difficult time when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling like you're alone in the world. Maybe you've never really had a real family that cares for you and you've never felt that, especially at this Christmas season, and it's challenging in that way. Or maybe as the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer, the darkness is creeping in in your life and you can't get out of bed in the morning. And that's the time, that's the time when we need to cry out and we say, oh come, oh come Emmanuel. Personalize that song and ransom captive Israel. Ransom me, rescue me because I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling the darkness. I'm feeling the depression. I'm feeling the pain. And I need you to be with me in this fallen and this broken and in this dark world. Shine your light on me and just give me a glimmer of hope. So wherever you are, wherever you are this Advent season, hiding, distracted, in the darkness, somewhere else, take the time. Make the time to focus on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, to focus on Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who pursues us, the God who loves us, the God who is willing to be born into this world, to live, to suffer, to die, to rise again so that we could be with him. God's greatest present, God's greatest present to us, and we've been talking about this for the past several weeks, God has given us so much, but his greatest present to us is ultimately his presence with us. Right from the very beginning, God wanted to be with us. And he showed that to us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Emmanuel, God is with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you 
I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you want to be with us. I thank you that you entered into this world so that we could be with you. And I pray that during this Advent season, I pray that each of us every day would stop, take the time, focus on you. And as we do, I pray that we would see you in a new, a fresh, a renewed way. And as we see you, as we recognize your presence, I pray that we would have hope, that we would have light shining in the darkness and that you would draw us closer to yourself. And I pray that as that happens, we would grow in our love for you, our love for the people around us. And I pray that they would see you in us and ultimately would be drawn to you. And we thank you and we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.